Well, it's good to see you here tonight in your place. Glad you're like the, not like the fellow I met out in Idaho. The pastor invited him to come to the service. He said, no, I can't come. Pastor said, why not? He said, well, I have milk in the refrigerator. The pastor said, you have milk in the refrigerator. What in the world does that have to do with coming to church? He said, well, one, one excuse is as good as another. And it kind of is, really, when you get down to it. So I'm glad you didn't have an excuse tonight to stay home. I was telling that story out in Connecticut, and a man came up afterwards. He's kind of chuckling. He said, uh, I found that story interesting. He said, tonight, on my way to church, I stopped and invited my sister to come with me. She said, no, I can't come. I got to go buy milk. <laughs> so whether you have it or you don't have it, it's a problem. But uh, glad you're here, and uh, thank you for the good singing already tonight. Let's go to Isaiah chapter number six, if you will, the book of Isaiah and chapter number six. We'll read starting with verse one. I'd like to read down to verse eight, if I can. Isaiah chapter six and beginning with verse one. The Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. There will be seasons in your life where you'll wonder, Where's God? Where's God? You ever been there? There are times where you wonder, Is God still there? Is He still on the throne, or is He turning a deaf ear to my prayers, where is God? When I was a junior in college, I'd been dating a young lady for a number of years, and we were friends, and, and uh, yet uh, she was graduating. Uh, she was going to be done in the uh, end of the first semester and had taken a job teaching in Indiana and and I uh, was excited about that, felt called to teach young people in elementary school and was trained accordingly and was very excited about this opportunity to teach. And well, God was calling me to preach and leading me toward evangelism. And we just couldn't see how that was ever going to work out. And uh, we talked about it some on several occasions. And finally, one day after lunch, we decided that we would break up. This just couldn't possibly be God's will. She was going a one direction. I was going another direction. And it just didn't seem like it could be God's will for us to continue in our relationship. And so we, we ended. 
Now, I remember going from that talk up to my afternoon class. I had a class, an upper-level speech class, and I, I kind of knew everybody in the class. We had taken a lot of classes together, and we always had a good time in there. But that day, I, I chose a seat over by the window away from everybody else because I couldn't stop crying. Now, I'm not a crier, but that day I couldn't stop crying. There was a hole in my heart. There was something missing all of a sudden. And I remember sitting in that class as a teacher tried to teach something. I remember thinking, God, where are you? It was 1975. I was scheduled to preach three weeks of revivals in the city of Los Angeles, three different churches. I had never been to the state of California, much less the city of Los Angeles. I got in my car and began to drive across country. I had a, a, a Volkswagen Beetle in those days, no air conditioning. And I remember driving across the, the country and I, I began to think they had lied to me in geography classes. I, I thought there is no Pacific Ocean. I'm never going to find this place. And 55 miles an hour, no interstate highways, two lane roads. And I remember trying to get to California and finally got there. And of course, we didn't have GPS. We had maps pieces of paper with lines on them. And, and I tried to find the church in, in La Puente, California, right in the heart of Los Angeles. And man, I was going everywhere and finally arrived at this church on a Saturday morning. And I was just so excited to be somewhere and, and, and get ready to preach. And I, I pulled in the parking lot and there was a man uh, working on some flower beds over by the, by the main auditorium. And I, I got out of the car. I walked over there to him and introduced myself. And he introduced himself as the pastor. And after we made an acquaintance, he said, what can I do for you? I said, I'm, I'm here to hold a revival. He said, well, I don't know anything about that. Here I was in the city of L.A. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a credit card. I had $36 in my pocket, but I had six days before the next meeting would start. And I got back in my car. I drove down that street where the church was on about six, eight, maybe 10 blocks. And I came to an old, what I call, flea bag hotel. In fact, there were three or four of them to choose from, and I chose the nicest one. I pulled in there and went inside the motel office, and a very kind lady said, what can I do for you? I said, I, I think I need to see the manager. She called for a guy, and he came out. He said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I, I, I'm in your town for the next uh, six days, and I, I need a place to stay. He said, no problem. I said, well, there's a little problem. I said, I only have $36. He thought for a minute and he, he reached down under the counter and he pulled out a ring of keys. He said, follow me. We went through a back door into an open courtyard area. It really wasn't a courtyard. It was kind of a junk area, but it was in between some buildings, had some old beds and dressers back there. And we kind of made our way through the weeds and the junk. And he opened an iron door with one of those keys and pushed it back. And we went inside a small little room. It had a tile floor. It had an army uh, uh, military metal cot with a mattress on it. There was, a, there was a toilet. There was a sink. There was a shower. And there was a metal folding chair. He said, it's all yours. Six dollars a night. I gave him my $36. He closed the door. I remember as he closed the door out of my peripheral, I, I noticed something above the door and I looked and there was a little shelf above the door and sitting on that shelf was a small black and white television set. 
Now, I remember, I don't know if I said it out loud, but I remember thinking, well, at least I have a TV. Now, I remember going over there and clicking that thing on, and, and the channel that it was on, it was set on, it was showing snow. It's kind of a black background with these white lines going across. It looked like a blizzard, like I'd grown up with in Wisconsin. And I thought, man, I'm in California. I don't want to watch snow. And so I turned to the next channel, and it was showing the same program. I went all the way around 13 channels. They were all the same network. Static. And I remember sitting on the edge of that bed thinking, God, where are you? It was 1983. My family was traveling with me now. I had a wife and two children. We were pulling a 16,000-pound trailer and living in it and moving across the country from week to week. And we were in Warrenville, Illinois, a western suburb of Chicago. The pastor was a church planter, and we had been with him in a couple of meetings earlier in other places. He would generally go to a town, start a church, and, and get it running. About three years it would usually take him, and then he'd turn it over to a pastor, and he'd move on to another city to start a church. And here he was in the western suburbs of Chicago, and we pulled our trailer into that uh, driveway of his house and, and uh, parked there right in his driveway. He had uh, seven children, and and uh, we got reacquainted. The meetings were going to be held in an elementary school. And that week, if it could go wrong, it went wrong. It was like Murphy's Law. Everything just seemed to turn out negative. In fact, the building we were renting, the janitor would never show up. We had to break in the building just to have the meeting every night. And everything just went wrong, 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 wrong. And I remember about Wednesday, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, pastor's really struggling. I mean, he is really hurting. His kids are hurting. His wife's hurting. And this is not, this, this, this plant is not going well. And this meeting's not being much of a help. And I said, I, I don't know what the love offering will be this week. Probably won't be much. But I kind of think we should probably give it to the pastor. I think he needs it more than we do. She said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. And I always hated it when my wife agreed me, with me about stuff like that. But we, we, we decided to pray about it and talk about it more. And we did. And finally, Friday night came and and uh, nothing really had improved much over the course of that week. And Friday night, he invited us into the house, and we had some popcorn with the kids. And finally, he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out an envelope, and he said something like, we wish it could be more, but we did our best. And, and I remember for the first time in my life, before or since, I, I opened that envelope in the presence of the pastor, and I pulled out that check, and I remember seeing the amount. It was for $250. And I'll tell you, in 1983, that was a lot of money. That was an amazing love offering for a week of revival meetings. I had no idea where they would have come up with that kind of money. But I'd already decided what I was going to do, so I turned it over, and I, I began to sign the bank, and I said, Pastor, I, I, I believe the Lord would have us give this to you and your family. And he tried to resist me, and I said, no, no, and I put it in his shirt pocket, and he started crying, his wife started crying, all seven kids started crying, and I got out of there. <laughs> no sense hanging around that. You know, when you obey the Lord, you feel good about it. And we slept like a rock that night, got up the next morning, hooked up our trailer, and started off to St. James, Minnesota. And I had enough fuel on board to get there, and we started driving up through Wisconsin, I-94, and got off at Toma on I-90, and we were going to go across to western Minnesota there, and we got to La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I looked down, and both of my fuel tanks were on empty. And I still had over 100 miles to go. And I said, Lord, I'm out of gas. I need gas. And the Lord said, well, get some. 
I said, well, that's easy for you to say, but I don't have any money. I gave all my money to the guy in Chicago. I still didn't have a credit card. I, I, I said, Lord, you, you got to have money to buy gas. He said, just get gas. Now, I had heard stories about pastors and preachers who had pulled into a gas station and just filled it up and somebody else paid for it. I didn't have that kind of faith. I was operating on a cash basis. And so I said, Lord, I, I don't have any money. And the Lord said, you got money. I said, no, I don't have any money. And the Lord said, you've got money. And he reminded me in the trailer, we had bought a, a, a sand bucket for the kids to play in the sand with. The, the, the handle had broken off, but they wanted to keep it. It was a yellow bucket and they wanted to keep it and throw their pennies in there. And every time we'd come in, they'd say, you have any pennies? And we'd give them our pennies and they'd throw them in that bucket. And it was about three quarters full. And the Lord said, use that. I pulled into a gas station in La Crosse, Wisconsin and bought 40 gallons worth of fuel with pennies. I'll never, I'll never forget the expression of the guy's face as he counted them two by two on that glass counter. Nor will I ever forget the expression of the seven people behind me waiting to pay for their gas. But we miraculously got to St. James, Minnesota. Pulled in there, little clapboard, white building on the edge of town, the Manor Baptist Church, running 13 people. The youngest was 65 years old. We pulled in there, got set up Saturday night, met the pastor, and he was working full time at a lumber yard, 50 hours a week, and trying to make ends meet. Sunday morning, we preached the Sunday school hour, the morning service, and nobody said anything about lunch. So we went out to the trailer and threw a few canned goods together and had something to eat. And I thought, well, they'll feed us tonight. And, and uh, we preached evening service. And the pastor, after it was over, he said, well, I got to go to work at six in the morning. He said, I'll see you tomorrow night at seven. We went to bed hungry. The next morning, I was I was out washing down my trailer. I always tried to wash it on Mondays, get all the road grime off of it, you know. And I was back behind that trailer having a pity party. I was saying, Lord, I, I know I did what you told me to do in Chicago. I have no doubt about it. And I said, you miraculously got us here to St. James, but where are you now? I mean, I got a wife and two kids in there and I can fast this week. That's no problem. But if I don't take care of them, I've denied the faith. I'm worse than an infidel. That's what you said. Now, where are you? <laughs> there will be times in your life where you'll wonder, where is God? And I think Isaiah is there. The king has died. And the nation is left without leadership. And the prophet is wondering, Lord, what do we do now? We're vulnerable. If we come under attack, what are, what are we going to do? And, and Isaiah begins to ponder this thing as he, he realizes that, that, that he's kind of alone here. And I believe in sort of a subliminal way, Isaiah in this passage points out three locations where you can always find God. When God seems missing, you can always go back to these three locations and find him. Now, we understand from the Bible that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. But as the songwriter said, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And sometimes we get away from God and it seems like God is missing. And Isaiah says, come back to these three locations and God will always be there. 
The first one we find in verse number three, as Isaiah gets this vision of God, he sees him sitting on this throne and these angelic beings, these seraphims as they're called here, are are worshiping God. And in verse number three, one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When God seems missing, you'll always find him in the holy place. You see, the word holy is a qualifier word of everything that God is. God is a God of love, but his love is a holy love. God is a God of wrath, but his wrath is a holy wrath. God is a God of righteousness, but his righteousness is a holy righteousness. God is a God of mercy, but his mercy is a holy mercy. Everything is qualified about God by this word holy. The Bible tells us in the book of of Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 45, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord thy God, am holy. In the book of Psalms chapter 99 and verse 9, God says, Worship toward his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. In Exodus 15 and 11, who Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee? fearful in holiness. God is a holy God. And if we want his presence in our life, if we want his power in our life, if we want his protection in our life, if we want his provision in our life, we've got to stay in the holy place. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, a church that was not known for its separation. They often struggled with the things of the world. And Paul writes to them there in chapter 7 of the second letter in verse 1, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of the Lord. Perfecting holiness. How hard are we working at perfecting holiness? You know, someone who plays an instrument like Brother Bishop plays the piano so beautifully. You know, there have been times where he has worked at perfecting those skills. He has practiced. He has taken lessons. He, he practices the, the offertory. He practices the, the, the specials. He, he has to work at that. Why? Because he wants to do a good job. He's perfecting his skill of playing the piano. Someone who plays sports, they, they don't just go out for the game and perform uh, there on the courts or on the field. No, there's practice time, isn't there, where they're perfecting their skills. They're working on those basic fundamentals so that they can achieve the goal or the success of winning. How hard are we working at perfecting holiness? Our music students there at West Coast, they practice 20 hours a week, practicing their music. I wonder how many hours do we spend a week practicing holiness, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. I know what people say today. Well, this is an age of grace. We have liberty today. We can kind of live however we please. We're saved and that's all that really matters. You know, the Bible teaches us about that grace that brings salvation in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. And in verse 12, he says, teaching us that grace does, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. 
You know, if you're reading that in the first century or the 21st century, it's still this present world. And God expects us to be holy. In fact, in Hebrews 12 and verse 14, he says, follow peace and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. God's going to seem absent. His throne is going to seem like it's vacant when we get away from the holy place. We must come back to holiness. But then in verse number five, as Isaiah gets this vision of God and he sees God for all that he is, he then sees himself and his response is one of humility. He says, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When God seems absent, we must go back to the humble place. One of my fast becoming favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 66 and verse 2, where it says, In part, to this man will I look. Now, I don't know about you, I need God to look my way. I need God to show favor on my life. I can't do what I do by myself. I can't be the right kind of husband or the right kind of father or grandfather without God. I I can't be the preacher I need to be without God. I I can't be a good teacher. I can't be a good staff member. I, I can't do the things I'm supposed to do without God. And he says to this man, will I look even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. You see, God doesn't hang around his abominations. And everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. These six things doth the Lord hate, ye seven are an abomination, a proud look. In Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord be high, well, I guess so, he's about as high as you can go. You can't get higher than God. He's the creator of the universe. So the Lord, though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Now think about this. If I asked you, who do you respect? Well, it would it would probably depend on the context of our conversation. Again, if we, if we took a musician, somebody that is, is musically talented and gifted and, and loves music and, and performs music, and we said, who do you respect? They would probably say somebody that's a little bit farther along than they are. Somebody that's more gifted, somebody that's taken more lessons, that's more advanced in their skills. And they would say, that's who I respect. I look up to that pianist or I look up to that vocalist. Man, they, they are terrific. And, and if I could perfect some of the skills they have, if I could practice like, like they do, boy, I could, I could achieve some of that. Same thing in sports. If we were talking about sports, who do you respect? Well, a high school athlete might look up to a college athlete or a college athlete might look up to a professional athlete. They would look to somebody higher up. Who does the Lord respect? He's at the top. God says he has respect unto the lowly. But the proud, he knows afar off. See, when humility leaves our life, when we become proud and haughty at ourselves, God's going to seem vacant. 
God's going to seem absent. God is going to seem to be missing because God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble by humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. By the way, humility is a do-it-yourself project. Now, God can humble us, but he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. The humble place. In 45 years of preaching around the world, I've met a lot of wonderful Christians. And, and not everybody that I would consider to be a wonderful Christian as a preacher. Now, many preachers are wonderful Christians, and I'm thankful for the many friends I have in the ministry who are just wonderful Christian people. But there are some people in churches, just lay people, we would call them, that are wonderful Christians. But I've noticed that in my estimation of what a great Christian is, there's a common thread that runs through all of them, and that's humility. When I was a boy, I heard the name Paul Levine. And I'd never met Paul Levine. He was an evangelist. I'd never met him. I'd never heard him preach. I'd never heard him on tape or anything like that. I, I just heard preachers talk about evangelist Paul Levine. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, someday I hope I get to hear Paul Levine. I, I hope he doesn't die or I hope something doesn't happen. I'd like to hear this man that people talk about Paul Levine. Paul Levine got saved at the age of four in Iowa. He got called to preach at the age of four. In fact, his, his mother said after he got called to preach at age four, he would come home on Sunday nights, grab his little Bible, jump up on the piano stool and start preaching. Paul Levine finished high school at age 15 and began traveling as a full-time evangelist. Couldn't drive a car. He walked, hitchhiked, took public transportation, but he began to preach all over Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Michigan and Illinois and Indiana and, 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 and began to hold revival meetings. When Paul Levine was 17 years old, he had a blind singer named Bob Finley that traveled with him. And they played their mandolins and they sang and they preached and, and traveled all over the Midwest. If you go to the Midwest, any of those six states I just mentioned a minute ago, if you go there tonight and you mention the name Paul Levine in a church, you'll have somebody come up to you and say, I got saved under Paul Levine. Paul Levine had a radio program called Bible Echoes out of Waterloo, Iowa. Preached the gospel every day on the radio. He had a, he had a track ministry called Bible Tracks Incorporated. It's still in existence today. I stopped in a Flying J truck stop last summer as I was traveling across country. Flying J is my second home. And I, I pulled in there and I went to use the restroom and I opened the stall and two tracks fell on the floor. One in English, one in Spanish, both printed by Bible Tracks Incorporated. Millions of tracks through that ministry. Paul Levine. I hoped I would meet him. Well, one day in 1981, I was preaching at the Faith Baptist Church in Danville, Illinois. I was sitting in my trailer, studying one morning, and a knock came on the trailer door. In those days, again, we did not have cell phones. Someone once said recently, you know, it'd be great if they could invent a little cord that would hook onto your cell phone and then attach to the wall. That way we wouldn't lose these all the time. 
Uh, that's already been thought of. So, so they had, they had landline phones, okay? So, so whenever you got a call as an evangelist, the secretary would run out from the church, knock on your trailer door, and you'd run into the church and take the call. Well, I took the call that morning, and the man on the other end of the line, he said, this is Dr. Bill Rice III from the Bill Rice Ranch in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Well, I had heard of the Bill Rice Ranch. I, I had heard John R. Rice preach. I'd heard Joe B. Rice preach. I'd heard Pete Rice preach. I'd had Bill Rice III preach. I'd, I'd, I'd heard these men, but I'd never met any of them. And, and I'd never been to the ranch. I, I'd heard a lot about it. The ranch started in 1953. Bill and Kathy Rice had a deaf daughter, and they started that ranch so the deaf could hear the gospel in sign language and, and bought that ranch. And, of course, they started Youth Weeks. And, and, and the first youth speaker at the Bill Rice Ranch in 1953 was Paul Levine. Well, Dr. Rice, he said, John, we've never met. But he said, I'd like to invite you to come and and preach with Dr. Levine at a youth week in 1983. Wow. I thought I had made the all-star team or something, you know. I couldn't believe it. I said, I'd be honored to. And man, I looked at the schedule. The week was open, and we scheduled that week, and I couldn't wait for it to come. Finally, it did, and I remember that, that first night, I walked in a side door to the John R. Rice Auditorium. I walked in the side door. There were 1,400 teenagers sitting there waiting for the service to start, 1,400. I walked in. I wasn't at all concerned about the teenagers. I, I, I was just wanting to, to meet Dr. Paul Levine. And I remember walking in there, and a man came toward me, and he stuck out his hand. He said, welcome to the ranch, Brother Getsch. It was Dr. Bill Rice III. We had never met before either. And we made a brief acquaintance. He said, come up on the platform. I want you to meet Dr. Paul. Oh boy, I looked on the platform. There was absolutely nothing on the platform except a piano down on that end. And then there was a pew that was probably about 25 or 30 feet long. It ran all the way across the front of that platform. And there wasn't anything else on the platform. There was nobody on the platform except for one man sitting on the very end of that pew. It was Paul Levine. I'd seen his picture by now. That's him. And I get to go meet him. He was sitting up there. He had his Bible open. He had a spiral notebook hanging out of it. And he had his pen out, and he's making notes. And I'm thinking, he's writing a sermon. He's preaching tonight. He's writing a sermon. Well, we walked up that stairs, and, 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 and Dr. Bill, he introduced me to Dr. Paul. And he stood up. He shook my hand with both hands. And he said, Brother Gatch, he said, I am so happy to meet you. He said, I can't wait to hear you preach. I thought, hear me preach. I'm here to hear you preach. <laughs> he said, here, sit by me. Sit by me. Oh, wow. And I sat down in that pew next to Dr. Paul. He opened that Bible again, flipped out that notebook, and he started making some more notes. I'm sitting there trying to read his notes. Couldn't read a word of his handwriting. I was looking at that. Well, finally the service started, and Dr. Bill, they had some songs and, and some specials. And then Dr. Bill got up and he said, Now, young people, tonight we get to hear Dr. Paul Levine. Dr. Paul has preached every youth week here since 1953, over 30 years of youth weeks. He's preached every week. He said, Dr. Paul, how many times have you preached here at the ranch? Dr. Paul wasn't even listening. He's still writing notes in that spiral notebook. But he heard his name and his head kind of popped up and he said, uh, 1,204. And Dr. Billy said, think of that, young people, 1,204 times this man that you're going to hear tonight has preached to young people just like you. And he goes on introducing them. And Dr. Paul, he, he, he punched me in the ribs and he said, I really don't know how many times I preached. <laughs> he said, all I know, Brother John, is I ran out of sermons a long time ago. <laughs> that was Dr. Paul. 
one night, a couple years later, we were preaching together again there. And it was a Thursday night. And the young people hadn't broken yet. You always wait for that breaking at camp, you know, that, that service where things kind of break open and break loose. It just hadn't happened. And Dr. Paul was really burdened, I could tell. And as we sat on the platform that night, he was, he was writing notes in that notebook. And during the special, just before he preached, I, I kind of lightly touched him on the knee and I said, Dr. Paul, I'm praying for you. He kind of leaned into me. He said, oh, thanks, brother. He said, you know, people tell me, trust God. Trust God. I do. But he said, I don't trust the devil. And it was things like that that he said to me that began to shape and mold my life. I don't know how many years ago it was now. I was preaching one session at what was called the Holiness Conference at that time up in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, the Falls Baptist Church. I was just there for one afternoon to do a three-hour session on a topic they'd given me. It was right after lunch from one to four, and everybody had to come to my session. Can you imagine three hours after lunch? I did everything I could to keep those poor people awake. And finally, after three hours, I let them go, and they were excited to leave and get to dinner so they could come back for the preaching that night. And as everybody was going out that way, I was packing my stuff up to leave, and as everybody's going that way, there was one man coming this way. He was hobbling down the middle aisle, feeling from pew to pew. You see, he was legally blind now. Cancer had overtaken his body. His wife was already in heaven. He would go in just two more weeks. But he had that Bible open, that spiral notebook hanging out of it. His pen in his hand, he was, he was feeling his way down that aisle. And I jumped off that platform. I said, Dr. Paul, I didn't know he was there. I said, Dr. Paul, I didn't know you were here. And he didn't say, hey, Brother Gatch. You know what he said? He pointed that notebook where he had written these huge letters to make up the words because he could barely see. He said, I, I missed letter E under point five. I missed letter E under point five, Brother John. What was letter E? I'm like, you don't need it. I mean, you're, you're going to go to heaven in two weeks. Just go over and sit down and wait. You, know? you don't need it. I said, I said, ah, Dr. Paul, you don't need it. Big old tears began rolling down his face. Oh, he said, I need it. I need to know God better. I need to know this book more. Brother Ketch, please tell me what was letter E under point five. That was Dr. Paul. Humility. When God seems missing, let's get back to the holy place. Let's get back to the humble place. And then let's get back to the harvest place. In verse 8, then I heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. You know, when God seems absent, if you'll roll up your sleeves, grab some tracks, and go knock on some doors, God will meet you there. He's always in the harvest place. When God seems missing, call pastor, say, Pastor, is there anybody in the hospital? Is there anybody shut in that I could go visit and be a blessing to? Get back into the harvest place. 
God's always there. You see, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is all about the harvest. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus had to say to his disciples one day, say not either yet four months and then cometh harvest. Lift up your eyes, look on the fields. They're white already to harvest. We've just come through the Christmas season not too long ago, and I'm sure that your pastor preached a number of messages about the birth of Christ. And, and, and the, the verses in, in the first part of the Gospels are precious verses as they tell us about the virgin birth and, and those, those, those days of Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and Anna and Simeon. And, and there's just so many great truths that are brought out at Christmas time. And we have wonderful, wonderful stories. But then... The Bible kind of goes silent about Jesus until his public ministry begins 30 years later. We know almost nothing about Jesus from the story of his birth and a, a, a few months after that to then the, that public baptism by John the Baptist and then his ministry begins to roll forward. But there's one little glimpse, there's one little glimpse into his life between that birth and his public ministry. You remember it? He was 12 years old. And his parents, his human parents, Mary and Joseph, they, they took Jesus up to, the, to Jerusalem to a feast. And they traveled in a large company of people, I, I suppose for, for, for fellowship, maybe for security, maybe for just accountability, I don't know. But they, they traveled in a company or a group of people. And they travel up to Jerusalem, they enjoy the feast, and then they, they started for home. And again, they're traveling in this large company of people, and they got a day's journey when suddenly they realized they had lost God. <laughs> How do you lose God? They lost Jesus. Now, I, I, I can kind of imagine, I have a little bit of an imagination, and I can imagine this conversation going something like this. Uh, Joseph, have you seen Jesus? Uh, no, Mary, I, I haven't seen him today. Well, well Joseph, you haven't seen Jesus? Well, no, Mary, I thought he was with you. You haven't seen him? No, I haven't seen him since we left Jerusalem. Left Jerusalem, Mary, what do you mean you haven't seen him? That's a day ago. Mary, where's Jesus? I don't know where he is, Joseph. I thought he was with you. Well, well have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen? I mean, they can't find him. So they go back. They hurry back. And you remember where they found him? He's in the temple. And he was, he was answering the questions of the scholars from the Bible. And he was teaching them the word of God as a 12-year-old boy. Now, I said this Saturday night, but the Bible is not in video form. And the Bible just gives us words. Sometimes you have to supply the emotion to those words. The words in that conversation, Mary finds Jesus there in the temple, and she says, Son, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Where hast thou been? Now, those are the words. <laughs> but I don't think that was the emotion. <laughs> have you ever lost your kid at Walmart? <laughs> yeah. Son, where have you been? Are you okay? Are you okay? I was so scared. I thought something happened to you. You know, that's probably what's going on here. And you remember Jesus' response? How is it that you sought me? Wished you not that I must be about my father's business? 
In other words, you should have known where to look. I'd be in the harvest place. That's where he always is. He's always in the harvest place. So does God seem missing tonight? Let's come back to the holy place. Fix the broken. Let's come back to the humble place. Let's come back to the harvest place. By the way, that girl I broke up with that day, we've been married now for 45 years. But you see, at that moment in time, I wasn't ready for marriage. There was some purging that needed to take place in my life. I needed to come to a holy place in my life before I could ever enter into something as important as marriage. And those six days in that flea bag hotel in Los Angeles, that door never opened. I never spoke a word. I made no phone calls. I ate no food. And I've preached thousands of revivals since. 28,000 sermons. But the best revival meeting I've ever been in was in that hotel room because it was just me and God in the humble place. See, when I came out of college, I was ready to preach in the stadiums. Lord, show me the stadium. Show me the 10,000 people. I'm ready. I got three sermons. God said, no, 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 no. We got to go to the humble place first. And that Monday morning behind my trailer in St. James, having that pity party, all of a sudden a, a car pulled into the church parking lot. It was a 1954 Ford, an old antique car. Behind the wheel was a heavyset man, affectionately known in those parts as Tiny. Weighed over 400 pounds. He pulled into that parking lot. He rolled down the window. He saw me behind my trailer and he said, Hey, Brother Gatch, do you need any food? Now, Tiny was not a member of that church. In fact, he and his wife and two little girls lived 40 miles away. But they had heard that there was a revival going on and they had come down on that Sunday night before and asked the preacher if they could talk to us, my wife and I. And after the service, we sat in the front row with Tiny and his wife and his little girls, and he told us how the town they lived in didn't have a church. There was no Bible-preaching church of any kind. And this was the closest church to them, 40 miles away, and he said, Brother Gatch, it's hard for us to get our girls ready and come this far, 80 miles, every service back and forth. He said, we don't know what to do. We don't know if we should just make the sacrifice to drive this far, or whether we should try to start a church in our town. We don't know anything about that. What do we do? I didn't know much, but I knew how to pray for him. I tried to just love on him and encourage him as best we knew how. He said, do you need any food? I thought, who asked a dumb question like that? I kind of put my tools down, walked over there to his car. I said, what, what, what are you talking about? He said, do you need any food? I said, sure. He said, get in the car. I got in and he started driving to his house, 40 miles. And I, I said, Tony, what's this all about? 
He said, I work for the Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> Are you the mascot or what? You know, big. I was soon to find out that that area of St. James is in a very fertile valley of Minnesota and tens of thousands of vegetable farms are everywhere. And Jolly Green Giant and Del Monte, they had these big food processing plants. And this tiny guy, he was a, a, an executive with Jolly Green Giant. He said, I came out of my house today to go to work. And he said, I got four freezers in my garage full of food. He said, we mispackage stuff, mislabel stuff. I bring it home, throw it in those freezers. He said, I walked out to get in my car. And he said, I wonder if that preacher needs any food. Now I'm sitting there thinking, this is great. This is pretty cool. But seriously, God, green beans? I mean, I'm hungry, but broccoli? I mean, couldn't you talk to a beef farmer or somebody? We got to his house, he rolled that garage door up, and he started flipping those lids of those freezers up. And I didn't know it at the time, but Jolly Green Giant made lasagna. They made Swiss steak. He filled that whole 1954 Ford up with box after box of food. We came back to St. James. We had to borrow the pastor's freezer, the church freezer, neighbor's freezer. By Friday, we were giving away food if somebody just come hear me preach. And God said, son, you just stay on that front row ministering to people. I can feed you. When God seems missing, get back to the holy place. Get back to the humble place. Get back to the harvest place. God's there. He never leaves us or forsakes us.